You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. The Big Lie. That's what the Nazis called it. Actually, not any old Nazi came up with that, but the number one king head Nazi of all time, Adolf Hitler, the big lie. That was his idea. Some bullshit you repeat purposely, knowingly, again and again, and that you keep repeating even after it's been pointed out to you, to the people that you're lying to, that you are lying your fucking face off about that thing. A big lie is by definition outrageous. It has to be so outrageous it's barely believable, absurd on its face, for it to be a big lie. But if that big lie appeals to the prejudices of the crowd you're telling it to, it can work. Keep repeating that big lie, repeat it confidently, shamelessly, and people will start believing it's the truth. First your rabid followers, then people who are only half paying attention, and then, well, not everyone, but enough of everyone for you, the demagogue, to do real damage to societies, to countries, to institutions, to the vulnerable people you are lying about. Here's Donald Trump. Yes, please forgive me. You're about to hear Donald Trump's voice repeating a big lie at a rally in Green Bay, Wisconsin this weekend. The baby is born. The mother meets with the doctor. They take care of the baby. They wrap the baby beautifully. And then the doctor and the mother determine whether or not they will execute the baby. I don't think so. Donald Trump has told this lie before. And it's been pointed out to him that this is a lie, and yet he keeps telling this big lie. The lie that doctors, nurses, and new mothers are committing infanticide in women's clinics and maternity wards. What he's lying about here are tragedies. A woman carries a child to term and before birth learns that that child has a fatal birth defect and will not survive. She and her partner are in an excruciating position, take invasive and painful steps that might prolong their newborn child's life by a few days, but fill that life with suffering or provide palliative care, a blanket, low lights, some comfort. Julia Pulver, a neonatal intensive care unit nurse, took to Twitter to describe what actually goes on in a case like this. On the worst day of the parents' lives, these are wanted children. Pulver and her colleagues, quote, provide the equivalent of neonatal hospice care to families who are living through hell. No one, she goes on in this tweet storm, and I think you should go look it up, no one ever in any hospital nor any mother who has ever just given birth is conspiring with a doctor on whether or not to commit infanticide. Trump tells this lie, this big disgusting lie to whip up his base for political gain. And if a few doctors or nurses get shot or a clinic gets bombed, that is a price the pro-life GOP is willing to pay to win Wisconsin in 2020. And this is just one of the big lies the right tells about abortion. Big lies that, when they succeed in getting abortion banned or driven out of most states, will result in the deaths of vulnerable women. And the thing about big lies and big liars, one of the ways they get away with it is the reluctance of people to look at the liar and look at the lie and call the liar a liar and the lie a lie. The New York Times this weekend in a tweet said this, at a rally on Saturday in Green Bay, Wisconsin, President Trump revived an inaccurate refrain about doctors, quote, executing babies. 
revived an inaccurate refrain? The fact check that tweet linked to was pretty good, but the word lie appeared nowhere in it either. Most people see headlines and move on, which is why it is important to call liars, liars in headlines, and lies, lies in headlines, because failing to do so emboldens the liar to keep telling that big lie and float others. CNN did a little better. They called it an incendiary falsehood. But why send seven syllables to do the job of one? Most Americans, particularly the uneducated Americans Trump himself says comprises base, have no idea what incendiary means. Flammable, combustible, incendiary falsehood. How about just fucking lie? How about L-I-E? Don't want to beat up on the New York Times or CNN like Trump does? I am actually a dead tree subscriber to the New York Times. I've contributed to the New York Times. But the inability, the reluctance, the hesitancy, even now, to call Trump's lies lies, we are playing into the hands of a demagogue. And the failure to call the lies lies at this point is complicity in the telling and propagating of those lies. Trump lies about the media. He lies about his poll numbers. He lies about where his father was born. He lies about everything. Some of his lies are small, but when they're big, like this big lie, it is imperative that we call it a lie. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro-free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues and lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long, more guests, no ads. Dr. Nicholas Christakis joins us, the sociologist, to talk about his new book. All of that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old woman on the West Coast, and I need your help getting over a breakup. So I, <laughs> I have this problem where um, I've been realizing that I'm super kinky and have been recently exploring with having all sorts of uh, male slaves in my life. <laughs> so one in particular that was serving me for a while that um, I really enjoyed. That was really great. And then at the same time, I have this whole vanilla life. There are guys who I meet, one guy in particular who I met, who I really liked. I dated him for not very long, like five weeks or something, but I just really, really liked him. I knew that it wasn't going to be long term. Like I wasn't into his dick, but I really liked him for other reasons. And basically, um, when I told him about my kinks, he was sort of freaked out. He wanted to get past it and actually um, was willing to date me, but I, I totally blew it. I didn't want to be monogamous so fast. And anyway, he broke up with me and I'm really upset about it. And I'm feeling all of the shame around being kinky and like I shouldn't have told him and maybe like it's wrong and I shouldn't be doing it in the first place. I just don't know what to do with myself. Like, does being kinky mean that I don't get to have vanilla relationships? And is that <laughs> an acceptable compromise? And, and maybe the opposite is true. Maybe the fact that now I know how kinky I am means that I shouldn't even try being in vanilla relationships. I just don't know what to do with it. There are people out there who successfully integrate their kink with their romantic interests. And that can take many different forms. There are people out there who are romantically involved with their quote unquote 
slave, married to their slave. They're in love with their slave. They hang out. They make dinner. They chill. And there's this low thrum under the relationship that the dominant or the sub by mutual consent can dial up to 11 and suddenly it's very, very kinky and very, very obvious what their roles are. That is one path. There are also people out there who integrate their kink and romantic lives by having their kink and having their kink partners and kink play buddies and having a long-term committed relationship with someone where the relationship is mostly or primarily vanilla, no DS dynamic, not a lot of kinky sex, maybe no kinky sex at all, vanilla sex within the bounds of the relationship and all of the kink play and those DS roles, those heightened roles. And that play is walled off from the romantic and vanilla-ish relationship. That is another way that you can integrate these things. But that doesn't work. The latter, where you have a romantic and vanilla relationship with someone you love and a long-term commitment, if that person can't allow you also to express this other aspect of your sexuality with other people, or if that person shames you for these interests, those relationships work when your vanilla partner acknowledges, allows for, accommodates, even celebrates your kink, even if they don't want to participate in your kink, even if you don't want them to participate in your kink. They aren't threatened by it and aren't judging or shaming you for it. You're 30. You're relatively young. You've just come into your kinks. I think you need to keep exploring before you figure out what works for you. Some people can have the kink partner. They can have the slave with whom they have a romantic committed relationship as well. Some kinksters can't do those things. They can't integrate kink and love. Those are separate boxes, separate roles. And that's not necessarily a problem so long as a person is self-actualized and self-aware enough to know that about themselves. And so then not to mislead someone who wants to be someone's sub but also wants to be someone's husband. Or attempt to force someone who wants to be your husband and your lover and your partner but not your slave into playing that slave role to please you. Once you know whether you can integrate these things, and I'm not saying you need to or should have to, then you'll know which kind of partner is the right partner for you. Sub and husband or husband who allows you to have your subs on the side. Hi, I'm a 35-year-old cisgender woman in the Southwest. I have a question about wedding etiquette and like friend etiquette, I guess. So my friend from college, who is my best friend, is getting married. I haven't seen her in four years. We haven't really talked in many years, but ever since she got engaged, she keeps reaching out to me. She's like, I can't do this without you, all this stuff. And I don't know what to say. We haven't really had a relationship like again in like four years. So do I want more of a relationship? Not really, but I don't know what to do. I've gotten out of being a part of the wedding, but... I don't even want to go to the wedding, to be honest with you. And I just don't know how to say I don't want to go. Again, I haven't talked to her in years. I haven't seen her in many, many years, but we were best friends. And I am friendly with her family. What should I do, Dan? You're under no obligation to go to this wedding. No one is under any obligation to go to anyone's wedding. But you do have to know, you have to realize that if you're invited to someone's wedding and you are close or were close, and obviously if they're inviting you to that wedding and they're trying to reestablish contact, they would like to be close again, not going to the wedding is really to set fire to what's left of that relationship. 
and salt the earth. And maybe that's what you want. You don't want to be this. You're not really this person's friend anymore. You haven't spoken for years. You haven't seen each other for years. And suddenly out of the blue comes this wedding invitation. We can infer from the arrival of that invitation and your friend's efforts to reach out to you, invite you to be part of her wedding party, which you declined, that she wants to be friends again. You have to ask yourself whether you want to be friends again too. Seems obvious that the answer is no. So send a toaster, send a gift, send a card, and send your regrets. But if the wedding is in town, if it's easy to show up, and it's not much skin off your ass to pull on a dress you already own and run over and eat some free food and have some cake, always a draw for me, cake, I would encourage you to go, not for the friendship that you're going to have with this woman going forward, but to acknowledge the friendship that you once had with this woman and what you once meant to each other. And go to her wedding and wish her well in the future, a future that you're not going to be part of. If the wedding is nearby and it's not a pain in the ass to go, if this is some lunatic having a destination wedding, which should be against the fucking law, you shouldn't go. You don't have to go. But if it's just a banquet room on the other side of town and this was me, if this was my problem, I would show. I would go. And really, thank you for asking me this question. Nothing makes me feel like a real live advice columnist more than getting a wedding question. They're 40% of the questions that folks like Abby and Prudy get. And I never get wedding questions. So I just feel really great about getting a wedding question. And right after a slave question. How exciting is that? Hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old straight man. And I'm engaged to my lovely fiance. And our love life has never been... 100% 100% in sync, um, but that's not really ever bothered me. But when we do have sex, she tends to get in her head, she says, and then once that starts to happen, things kind of go south from there, and we both end up stopping or are unsatisfied. And one of the things that I've considered for her and told her is maybe start masturbating more. She doesn't uh, really do that at all, and I just feel like she's not really comfortable with her body in that way so but she's really resistant to it so i'm not really sure what to do you give me some advice on how to make her more comfortable i took a call a a few weeks ago maybe a couple of months ago from a guy whose girlfriend just laid there during sex became very still and very quiet and he found this unnerving and unsexy and i batted around some thoughts and i made some suggestions and a lot of people wrote me to point out that i missed the obvious His girlfriend may be a survivor of sexual trauma. According to the National Sexual Violence Research Center, one in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their lives. And one in three women and one in six men experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetimes. And someone who is living with that trauma may not be terribly responsive during sex, may not be comfortable in their own skin, in their own bodies. It's a difficult subject to broach. And it's not always a pleasant topic to contemplate. Maybe that's why I zipped right past it in that response to the previous caller. And I apologize for that. And I'm grateful to everyone who wrote and called in to draw my attention to that big miss on my part. It's a difficult conversation to have, like I said, with your partner. But you're intending to marry this partner. And part of marriage in the long haul is having difficult conversations with each other. So I think that you should lead with there has always been this disconnect in our sex life. I would like to work on this in a way that makes our sex life more pleasurable for you. Some of what you're saying, at least to me, and maybe you've approached her with more sensitivity and tact, sounds a little selfish. I want you to masturbate because it'll make sex better for me. 
I want you to masturbate because sex will be better for you, the sex that we have, if you're more connected to your body and, and your own pleasure. And your pleasure is this thing that exists independently of my pleasure, and yet we can bring them together and coordinate the giving and taking of pleasure in that moment when we get it on. And it does help. Women who do masturbate are likelier to come, likelier to enjoy sex, and a lot of women don't masturbate. A lot of young girls don't masturbate. They're, they don't feel entitled to masturbate. The culture doesn't affirm masturbation as a norm for young women. Shames young women for their desire and some women carry this into adulthood, carry this shame into adulthood. And it takes some time to connect with their bodies and feel entitled to pleasure and self-pleasure. And you can have that conversation with her without centering, as the kids at Reed like to say, your own pleasure or your dick. There are other possibilities here. Some people just have low libidos. It could be that she just feels pressured to have more sex than she'd like to have, and you might have to dial it back. She could be asexual or graysexual and just not that into sex. And forgive me for saying this, but you could be bad at sex. You could be disconnected to your own body, or you could not be taking her in and taking her body in in a way that puts her at ease and makes her feel comfortable while you two are having sex, it is a possibility. Some of us are bad at sex or some of us don't click with the people that we would like to have sex with and we have to negotiate how to make that work. So don't just go to her with, were you sexually assaulted? Are you asexual? Do you have a low libido? Also go to her with, am I doing something wrong? Is this not just about you and you not masturbating or are you feeling uncomfortable? Am I making you feel uncomfortable? Because that is also a possibility. And those are things that you want to run to ground. Those are things you're going to want to talk about before you make a lifetime and presumably sexually exclusive commitment to her or ask her to make that same commitment to you. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old cis female uh, living in a purplish metropolis of a very red state. I am a school teacher and I have a question about like having a lot to lose. Um, my partner and I want to attempt to maybe go to a sex club or some other public sex endeavors at an adult space. We don't want to do anything risky or, or some place that it's not consensual for everyone around us. But I'm so terrified of running into uh, parents of my students or administration, which I mean, is a little silly because if they're there too, they're there for the same reason. But I'm just really wondering if there's like real risk involved. Is my job at stake if I'm seen by people there, even if they're there too? Um, I really love teaching and I really do not want to risk my profession for doing this thing that my partner and I have always fantasized about but been too afraid to do. There's a math teacher on Long Island named Lauren Miranda, or there's a Lauren Miranda on Long Island who used to be a math teacher. She shared a topless photo of herself, a tasteful one, with a colleague that she was dating, a coworker, And somehow this photo made its way from her colleague to all of her students. Apparently, her colleague shared this photo, disseminated it in some way. Guess who got fired? Not the colleague, whose name we still don't know, but Lauren Miranda got fired. And she was fired because, quote, she caused or allowed or otherwise made it possible for the photo of her to circulate 
and for failing to take adequate precautionary measures in preventing its circulation. I'm quoting from the Guardian story about Lauren Miranda. We hold school teachers to double standards and we punish particularly women who are teachers for any evidence that they are sexually active, that they have sexual agency, that they have sexual desires that are in any way non-normative, that could in any way scandalize a fourth grader or more to the point, the sex negative, fucked up, idiotic parents of a fourth grader. So going to a sex club, I think you should be able to go to a sex club. I think Lauren Miranda should be able to go lay out topless in a park. I think Lauren Miranda should be able to send pictures of her tits to anybody she cares to send pictures of her tits to, to any consenting adult that she cares to send pictures to. And if that person, the person to whom she sent the picture, shares it with children, that person should be fired. That person should be penalized. That person's name should be splashed all over the newspapers, not Lauren Miranda's. So what I think doesn't really matter here, there's the risk that you are running by showing up at a sex club, a public sex environment in your own community. And the risk is you're going to run into parents of some of your kids and they're going to hold you to a different standard than they hold themselves. Sexual hypocrisy is a real and dangerous thing. And people will externalize their internal conflicts and people will take their own shame out on others. We see it most often with ex-gays or reparative therapists who are themselves gay, who are trying to stamp the gay out of other people in an effort to do penance for their own gay shit or to stamp it out of themselves. So it is entirely possible that you may run into parents of one of your students who feel a little bit weird somehow that they're there themselves and then they decide to punish you because it's okay for them to go, a doctor and a lawyer, or whatever the fuck they are, but it is not okay for the woman that they trust to take care of their child during the day to go to that same place that they go to, even though the kid's with them, a lot more of the time than they're with teacher. So if you want to go to a sex club, if you want to go to a public sex environment, I think you should be able to. You have to be aware that you run a risk by showing up there as a teacher. There are public sex environments. There are swingers clubs far, far away from home. You can plan a weekend out of town and visit one out of town. And th But this is where I slip into worst-case scenario disorder. Most swingers clubs require people to register. They want to know who you are. They want ID. What if that all leaks somehow? What if somebody hacks a swingers club like they hacked Ashley Madison or hacks a network of swingers clubs and puts all the information up about the membership online? But you got to live your life and there's no reward without some risk-taking? But yeah, you're a teacher and you're going to be held to a shitty – and you're a woman and a teacher and you're going to be held to a shitty sexist double standard that could potentially end your career if you get caught. And I think that's bullshit and I hate having to deliver that message to you. But that is just unfortunately for now the way it is. Hey, Dan. Mid-40s male here. My girlfriend is tired of there being a little too much hair down there and – Though she has lots of experience with hair removal, she doesn't have any with uh, the men's parts as, as uh, things go. When we looked online, everything was full of clickbait. And so I was thinking, who do I know who's an expert in all things sex? And we decided to call in. So, Dan, what would you do if you wanted to keep things down there a little more permanently trimmed? Waxing, laser, electrolysis? We don't know. Maybe the nair, you know, chemical stuff, but I'm always afraid of the, you know, it's going to turn into sulfuric acid burns or something. Inquiring minds want to know, and we need an expert opinion. 
There's a middle ground between too much hair and no hair at all. There's a middle ground between the forest and alopecia. Get a beard trimmer, get a clipper, get a hair clipper, and just trim it down so it's an eighth of an inch, a quarter of an inch long, and it will lay flat instead of sticking straight out. It will be less likely to irritate your partner's skin. If it ain't stubble, if it's a little calm, lay flat, but very short, pubic hair all around your dick and balls, that is a much better solution than nair or shaving or waxing or anything else. Hi, Diane. I am 32 on the West Coast. And my question is about incorporating weed during sex. A little backstory, when I started having sex until about, I was 28, penetrative sex would never, ever, ever make me orgasm. So I used to only have penetrative sex when I was with somebody I really connected with, someone I was in a relationship with, because there was nothing really in it for me. So I would allow that just for my partners as an extension of our intimacy, me being GGG, I guess, but not for the random hookup. Fast forward into maybe 29, 30, I was introduced to weed and the game has changed. I mean, it's fireworks. It's obscene how much I can come now when I'm high. I'm not complaining, but here's the issue. When I'm not high, it does not compare whatsoever. I want to get back to the high feeling, but I can't. So and I'm in a job where I could be drug tested at, at the drop of a hat. So I can be high every time I have sex. And luckily for me, I have about four sex partners at this time. So I'm having quite a plentiful of sex, which thank you, Lord. But when I'm not high, it's just not the same. And they've all noticed it. They've commented on it, and they know what the deal is. But I just feel like I'm not getting as much out of it as I want to. And I'm just looking forward to being high next time when I'm with them. I don't want to lose my job. I love my career. I love sex. So what do I do, Dan? Is there an alternative way to this? And my, my biggest concern is I don't want to get onto this slippery slope of today's weed, tomorrow, who knows what I'll be using, and then 10 years from now, who knows what I'll be using. I don't want to get onto the gateway track and then get too crazy with drugs down the road. So help, help, help. I want to have fireworks every time, but apparently only weed can give me that. Weed is not a gateway drug. Weed made it possible for you to start having lots of crazy orgasms when you have sex. Your anecdote confirms or adds to the mountain of evidence that Dr. Becky Lynn, who was a recent guest on the show, has amassed, showing that for many women, regular marijuana use improves their sex lives. And women who smoke pot are likelier to be orgasmic than women who don't smoke pot. Do with that what you will. What there is no evidence of is that Women start smoking pot or women who use pot are likelier to climax and then that wears off and suddenly those women are doing oxy or heroin. That is not happening. You do not have to worry about that. Your weed and orgasms combo is not a gateway drug to heroin and orgasms. I can assure you. But you're in this little trap right now where sex is better with weed but you have a job where you might be drug tested any moment and you can't risk getting high every time you want to have sex lest you draw the short straw and suddenly you're getting drug tested the day after you got high and had 30 orgasms. That would 
suck for you. You love your career. So what do you do? Well, you're going to have to parcel it out. Sometimes you're going to have sex with weed and it's going to be great. And sometimes you're going to have sex, maybe maintenance sex you could regard it as with a partner where you aren't able to get high that time. Then the sex isn't going to be as awesome for you, but you can still take pleasure in the pleasure that you gave your partner. And you can take pleasure in the more limited pleasure that you derive from that sexual encounter, the intimacy, the physical contact, if not the release, and all the orgasms that you're able to have when you combine weed with sex. You're just kind of trapped and there's no easy out here. There's no answer. If indeed your orgasms are dependent wholly upon weed, you may find that that becomes less true in time. That wherever weed takes you, as Dr. Becky Lynn's study showed, it wasn't only women who used weed right before they had sex, who derived these benefits, you may find over time that the sex even without weed gets better because there's some sort of sense memory your body takes away from when you are high and having sex and you're able to achieve those levels of relaxation or comfort or desire, even in the absence of weed possibly. Just a theory. But in the meantime, yeah, enjoy the intimacy, enjoy the contact, enjoy the pleasure you give and what pleasures you can drive when you can't have weed and enjoy the fuck out of it, out of the sex and all the orgasms you get to have when you can. And say you love your career. Can you take your career to a legal weed state? Can you transfer? Are there places where you can get a job in your field where drug tests for marijuana aren't allowed? Or are there companies you could move to that don't, like the one you're at now, infantilize their employees by testing them for pot while allowing them to swim in trucks full of Chardonnay? Hey, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old cis ace female in Seattle, and although some ace people have a libido or masturbate, etc., I personally don't. Um, my body is unable to get aroused or wet. When I started seeing my current partner, I explained to him that penetrative sex is not something I've ever had before or is not something I'm going to be able to offer. He totally accepted that, but as we spent more time together, I decided that I wanted to try to connect in that way. Recently, we tried vaginal sex with the aid of the slippery slube at our local sex shop, but he couldn't get very far in. He said that I was pushing him away, but I was in pain and I didn't even notice that I'd done that. He's so decent, made sure that I was emotionally okay and so that we don't ever have to try again until I'm ready or at all. But in theory, I really want to be able to offer my partner this. Um, do you or the Lovecast community have any ideas on how to push through not fitting or any ideas on products or practices that might help me out? I have a couple suggestions for you, but of course, the lines are open, 206-302-2064. If there's anyone else out there with a suggestion, give us a buzz. We'll play it at the end of an upcoming show. You might want to get yourself a set of vaginal dilators. They're basically a set of dildos going from thin and small to slightly thicker and slightly larger. And women who experience difficulty or pain with penetration will often be encouraged by sex therapists and counselors to work with a set of dilators and to lower the stakes and lower the pressure and to use them alone when you're by yourself, not necessarily to masturbate if masturbating isn't something that you're interested in or turned on by the thought of, but just to train your vagina to feel comfortable with slightly larger penis shaped objects in it. And if you do it without your partner there, and if you do it not in the run up to vaginal intercourse, you should be able to relax more because there are no stakes, no expectation, no pressure. And stakes, expectation, and pressure, performance anxiety can make what you experienced worse. My other recommendation would be outer course. And I assume that you're already doing some of that because you have a sexual relationship with your partner that didn't involve vaginal penetration. But you did have some sort of sexual 
contact and provided him with some sort of sexual pleasure and release. Well, outer course for some people means frottage, for some people can mean mutual masturbation. The kind of outer course I'm thinking about is instead of him penetrating you vaginally, instead of him lubing up his dick and you lubing up your vaginal canal and trying to get him in there, for him to lube up his dick and for you to lube up your vulva and for him to slide his dick back and forth across your vulva, up and down, he lays it flat against your vulva and against your clit if that feels pleasurable to you. If it doesn't feel pleasurable for him to stimulate your clit in this way, he can angle himself a little bit lower and prop himself up a little bit so as his dick rises up your vulva, it isn't bumping your clit. And a man can come like that, called frottage. Wet frottage, sometimes when people think about frottage, they think of people basically dry humping each other and getting off. But that is frottage and it can be very pleasurable and it can wind up feeling very similar to intercourse. And so you will be able to provide him with some of the sensations of intercourse, if not the whole 360 degree surround feel sound of intercourse. You'll be able to provide him with what it feels like to fuck you without having now, while you work with the dilators, necessarily right away, to penetrate you. But if it does feel good, him putting pressure on your vulva, his dick sliding back and forth across your vulva, clitoral stimulation, if that does feel good, you will begin to make a pleasurable association between your vulva and his dick being pressed up against your vulva and so vag adjacent and this kind of intimacy. And that may help you, that pleasurable association between his presence down there, his dick and your vulva grinding against each other may help you get closer to enjoying or being able to tolerate vaginal penetration. Hey, Dan and everyone at the Savage Lovecast. So my daughter is 11 and in fifth grade at a small private school. I always felt like her school and teacher are really great. She's been there a long time and we've never had any concerns. Uh, this year, a new boy joined the class, and he's a bit odd, I always thought, and also looks like he's about 16. He's really, really big. Let's call him Jay. So about a month ago, my kid came home and said, Mom, I'm going to tell you something, but promise you won't get annoyed. She said, my friend and I see Jay masturbating in class. So I ask questions calmly, like, is he actually rubbing or just? adjusting is his penis staying in his pants and she wouldn't answer me but reaffirmed that in fact he is masturbating and that her and her friend are sure about it so I write his teach her teacher and she reassures me that nothing's happening out of the norm so I calmed down and recently I went into the class which I never do after a class party, completely forgetting about the whole thing. And sure enough, that little fucker is sitting there. It's like a half circle room. So my daughter is across from him and he's totally going at it over his pants, under his desk. And I know he's aware of it because he notices me notice and he shifts his position trying to kind of hide what he's doing, but he keeps at it. You know, as a teenager, and a young woman, my friends and I encountered men masturbating, usually to us, as an almost normal occurrence. It happened so much. And seeing this kind of thing, it's been so long, but it brought up so much disgust and shame and anger for me. And it made me so pissed that my daughter and these kids in this class are being subjected to this. So 
I wrote the teacher that night and she said it was being handled, implying that she's aware of it. But I don't know how him sitting there for 10 minutes from what I witnessed uh, is the situation being handled. I feel like there should be zero tolerance for this. Better he learns his lesson now, even if it means he has to get kicked out of school. And my kids and her classmates learn that this is unacceptable and they should be safe and feel comfortable in their own classroom. I would just kind of love to hear your personal opinion as a parent and how you might proceed with this situation. I'm just curious. I don't have a lot of people that I feel like I can talk to about this and I don't want to start a bit of a shit storm with contacting parents at the school just yet or whatever. I, I just not quite sure how to proceed. If you want this to stop, you're going to have to make a stink. If you don't make a stink, it's obviously not going to stop. You have what most of the other parents in that room don't have, which is firsthand eyewitness experience of what your daughter was describing, of what's going on, what this boy is doing. And you're going to have to risk being that parent who called all the other parents and raised the alarm and caused the shitstorm and was the problem or is the problem because that's how shit gets solved. Because that's the only way that this is going to be addressed to your satisfaction. You're right to want your daughter not to live in a world where boys and men masturbate at her. And what this boy is doing, even at age 11, is not okay. And your daughter shouldn't have to sit directly across from it. That boy may need to be in a different kind of therapeutic environment for school. At the very least, you need to speak with the teacher and speak with the principal. When they say that this is being addressed, what the fuck does that mean? Because you were there in the classroom and it was happening and it was obvious to you and obvious to the teacher and it wasn't addressed. Nothing was done. So if you want this quote unquote addressed in a more proactive way, if you actually want something done about it, hopefully something that is sensitive to this boy's needs and this boy's psyche and if he's damaged, this boy's damaged as well. But something's got to be done and you're going to have to march in there and insist that it be done. Hi, Dan. I'm a 19-year-old cis female in a heterosexual relationship, but I am bisexual. And I have a friend who is gay. I'm pretty sure she's gay. And me and my partner, um, who is a male, have been looking for an opportunity to have a threesome. And we've talked about it, and we kind of agreed that like maybe we shouldn't do friends because it would possibly make it complicated. But We've also said that, like, if the opportunity arises, we should take it. And we thought that maybe threesomes would only be something that we do on vacation, whenever that does occur later in our lives. But my friend tweeted the other day, which is dumb, I know, but she tweeted that she is curious as to how threesomes would work and blah, 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 and that she's really interested in one. And, you know, I told my boyfriend that, you know, this friend of ours that we're really close to as a group I said this, and I just want to know your opinion on if I should maybe talk to her about it, see if it's something that she'd be into. Is it a turnoff for her because we're a couple? I just don't really know how to bring it up because I've never done this before. I think I can safely say I speak on behalf of the entire lesbian community when I say it's never too soon for a bisexual girl with a boyfriend to hit on her lesbian friends. Because that's something lesbians have to get used to and get used to pretty quick is their Bisexual female friends, not all of them, but enough of them to be statistically significant, making passes at them, asking them to have three ways with them and their boyfriend. 
it annoys a lot of lesbians. You might get a yes, but you're likelier to get a pissed off friend who thinks that you have no respect for her sexual orientation and you regard her as a prop or a toy that you can incorporate into your not straight relationship because you aren't straight, but into your opposite sex relationship. So I would encourage you not to hit on your lesbian identified friend. There are three times as many bisexual women out there, according to the best studies, as there are lesbian women. Three times. So if you want to have an MFF three-way, girl, girl, boy, or girl, boy, girl, go find a bisexual girl who is interested in having three ways with established couples. And they are out there. And you, because the internet exists, can advertise for them. There are dating apps for people seeking three ways. I would encourage you and your boyfriend to get on one and look around. You may find there someone you already know. And who knows? There are lesbians out there who are down to have a three-way with an opposite-sex couple every once in a great while. And if your friend is one of them, maybe she's on one of those dating apps. But if she ain't, don't hit on her. And you say your lesbian friend tweeted that she would be interested in having a three-way, but you don't mention whether she tweeted an interest in a three-way with an opposite-sex couple or an interest in a three-way with two other women. That is highly relevant. If she tweeted that she's interested in a three-way and she's lesbian identified, the assumption should be she's interested in a three-way with two other women. If she tweeted that she is interested in any sort of three-way at all ever, well, that's different. All right, we're going to take not a quick break, actually a little longer break than we usually would to have a conversation with an author. Nicholas Christakis, sociologist, joins us to talk about his new book, Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. He also speaks with me about the evolutionary origins of monogamy, non-monogamy, polygyny, teaches me how to pronounce that word correctly, polyamory, polyandry, polyamory. It's a really interesting conversation with a really interesting writer and thinker. And here it is. Nicholas Christakis, thank you for coming on my show. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. So you're a sociologist. You study human cultures and societies, contemporary and ancient. And your subtitle for your new book kind of tips your hand. You think we're wired to some extent to form relatively decent, relatively just societies or social systems, uh, wired for love, friendship, sharing, teaching. I'm Catholic. I was raised to believe that people, children included, children in particular, were basically bad. Talk me down. No, that's ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> if you, uh, I mean, if you, listen, if, if we were inveterately evil to each other, if we killed each other or harmed each other or betrayed each other or cheated each other, or stole from each other or lied to each other, why would we be together in the first place? I mean, if the cost of, if, if when every time I came near you, you harmed me in some way, I wouldn't come near you. We, we would live solitary lives. Our species would have evolved to be solitary rather than group living, in fact, uh, social living as we are, because we, we're social in a different way, let's say, than a herd of cattle, for example. Mm -hmm. We have particular intimate relationships, we particular friendships, and so forth. So, so in essence, what I argue is that the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the cost, and they did. So, so against all that Catholic guilt of yours, <laughs> I would place all kinds of other Protestant benefits. Okay, but 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 you know the the Catholic argument of you know about original sin and all of that, notwithstanding, yeah. um, you know how do you know what came first? Like this propensity for for goodness and to to organize ourselves and to 
societies or the, the, you know, culture or religion or parents or shame or stigma that took the raw material of basically shitty people and convinced them that it was to their advantage to be decent to each other. Okay, well, first of all, we have to draw a distinction between the broad sweep of our evolution, which preceded culture and history, but is still present. And it's, you know, you know, for example, we were equipped by evolution with uh, carnal desires and with the, the and also with loving sentiments. You must distinguish all that from the overlay that comes from culture and history. First point. Second point, you're right that even from the evolutionary framework, there's been a kind of arms race between uh, good and evil, if you want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know, as we evolved, for example, to be cooperative, uh, or as we evolved to be loving, it might have been advantageous for some individuals to exploit those tendencies and evolve, you know, sociopathic tendencies or exploitative tendencies. And then a counter-evolution of qualities that permitted us to discern who's taking advantage of us or who's cheating us, for example, and on and on and on. But on balance, on balance, we are more good than bad. So I think good is winning. And it really? has to be winning because it's, yes, because, <laughs> because I'm so, yes. every time I open the newspaper, turn on the news, look out the window, yes. I'm just like, yeah, shit is going south. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I know. I mean, every century is replete with horrors. There are venal and exploitative leaders there are people who cultivate parochialism and hatred of, of minority groups since time immemorial. That's been a strategy. There is there's poverty. There is uh, there is violence. You know, but it, but but first of all, even on a historical time span, I can't imagine that you think it's worse now than it was in the 17th, 18th, 19th, or frankly even the 20th century when we had atomic weapon explosions and world wars. So, so the world is better, mm-hmm. even in historical time frames. And I think it's part of our, you know, anyway, that, so I would, I would take issue with your pessimism. Sorry. <laughs> and maybe I've got it exactly backwards. You know, maybe it's not uh, culture that convinces us to be better. It's sometimes culture, particularly, I think, religion often that takes good people yeah. and convinces them to do bad things. I would agree with that. But I would also agree that religion, the religion, it serves a purpose. I mean, there are good aspects to religion, too. And, you know, you get pogroms and inquisitions. You know what plans for the Spanish Inquisition, but you get, you know, but you, but you also get a kind of way in which religion serves to unify us and serves to give us a sense of transcendent purpose, which is another whole topic. Let's talk about sex and mating and, and romance. I, I've heard you on on other shows, and a large, you know, majority of the book is devoted to to how societies organize themselves. But there's a couple of really fascinating chapters about love and sex and and how we organize ourselves romantically. Yes. If our ancestors were naturally monogamous, if monogamy was our natural state for 290,000 years and our species is only 300,000 years old, why are we so bad at it? Well, the important thing to understand is when I speak of monogamy here, I mean of a, of a practice of having a sustained interaction with your sexual partner. So first of all, I need to clarify that there's variation across individuals. I also need to clarify that um, even within uh, our heritage, we have evolved in some ways conflicting capacities. We want both to to fuck, for lack of a better word, <laughs> and also and also to love. And every human being knows this, right? They they have these. You're equipped with these desires, right? These these, these desires. But the interesting desire you're equipped with 
is not the desire to fuck, because any animal has that desire. Mm-hmm. We also have this desire to love, and that's unusual, okay? So if you look across animal species, and, and by that I mean we've evolved the attachment, the capacity to be attached to the people we are mating with, whether you're straight or gay, whether you're polyandrous or polygynous uh, or, or monogamous, we become attached to our sexual partners. And, and that's what I mean by the kind of monogamy we're talking about, this kind of uh, a sustained attachment. You're talking about social monogamy, but not necessarily sexual monogamy. Yes, uh, yes. And there's a lot of confusion in the terminology, and actually we can go into that if you're interested. But I guess the point I'd like to highlight initially in responding to a really good question was this notion of love being the unusual feature of our species. Now, we're not the only species that does this. So about 90% of bird species are socially monogamous. They're attached to their mate for long, more than one breeding season. They keep together. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's rare in primates. Social monogamy is rare in primates. Uh, and there are some other, and it's rare in mammals in general, actually, but it's also rare even in primates. So what's interesting and what needs an explanation is why do we love our partners? And what's fascinating to me is that this behavior of being attached to your partners is basically seen everywhere. It's a, it's a cultural universal with one interesting exception, which I know we're going to, uh, but it's a, so fundamental, this attachment that we feel. And I think that's a wonderful thing, and it's, it's a, I would say, a good thing. So in most cultures and most societies, there is this romantic attachment. Even in polygynous uh, yes. or polygynous, yes. one, that's one of those words Polygam- I read and then never say out loud until I embarrass myself by mispronouncing it on my own show. Polygynous means many partners. Polygynous means one man, many women. Polyandrous is one woman, many men. So then about 1%, 1% of societies are polyandrous. Right. It's really rare for one woman, uh, many men. It is common and, and more common yes. throughout history for yes. one man, many women. Yes. And you describe yes. in the book how that system, the one man, many women, is destabilizing because it results in high-status men having multiple wives and low-status men having yes. no rom- long-term romantic partners, no investment in the future, no offspring to worry about, and then a propensity or really an incentive to violence, to, to rape, to theft, uh, yes. sometimes of other men's women, for some other tribes' women. And so the one-man, one-woman system that emerged, uh, as you describe it in the book, and, and was embraced uh, by the Romans uh, and then exported throughout the Roman Empire and, and carried forward through you know, the Christian uh, cultures and societies, was really to get us out of that trap in some way, to get us out of the trap of so many men without female partners then having a propensity to violence? Yeah, so it, when you talk about monogamy, first of all, it, the scientists, the story is not wholly clear. I want to make a very, care, very careful sort of caveat here because, you know, you and I are speaking fast and there's a lot of sexy stuff in these topics and it's very tempting to, to simplify things. So, but the scientists aren't really sure. Like they write papers called like the puzzle of monogamous marriage or like, you know, the, I forgot some of the other stuff, like, you know, the conundrum or, you know, we can't, the mystery of monogamy, you know, they, the scientists don't fully understand it. And it's confusing because they're both social and biological factors that determine this. So let me just go back to that paragraph you read earlier and kind of give a rough overview. So we know that our hominid ancestors were uh, polygamous, polygynous, and we know this in part because of the different body size of men and women. 
So it was felt that you know, bigger men, stronger men could basically outcompete smaller men in order to um, hoard, in order to have access and reproduce. Exactly. And we also can think there before we kind of frame this as a male centered evolution, there's a whole set of arguments that look from the female point of view. Maybe it's not that the men are are beating out the smaller guys and getting more mating opportunities. Maybe it's that the women, the females, preferred bigger males. Uh, this is called the female choosiness or the female choice hypothesis. Probably both were happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so we know till about 300,000 years ago when our species first emerged, Homo sapiens, that this was what was happening. Beginning about at that period of time, for a variety of complicated reasons, uh, it, it became more advantageous for the, our species to be monogamous. So sort of a one man, one woman raising their offspring together where the father is also making investments in what's happening with the offspring. Uh, and we, we see the mark of this in a variety of things that's happening in our bodies. For example, we see, we see diminution in, in, um, in the size of canine teeth. So we are, our canines, which could have been used as weapons get smaller and a whole bunch of bodily changes can be seen in this. And actually our men and women become less dissimilar uh, around this time period. And, uh, and we live in forager bands where we sort of roam around and there's not a lot of inequality in wealth. So if you look, for example, in, in, uh, in the amount of status inequality and even in contemporary forager bands, there's not a lot of difference among the men. Yes, some men are stronger or faster or better able to hunt game, but food is shared widely in the community when it's brought in because there's no refrigeration, for example. Uh, and so it really didn't matter if you had, quote, a rich husband or a strong husband or mate, let's say. So we, we, we lived in a kind of monogamous way. We, we were spread out from about 300,000 years ago to about 10,000 years ago. And, of course, there were exceptions in different parts of the world and different human beings and blah, blah, blah. But in general. How do, wait, wait, wait. How do we know yeah. that people 300,000 years ago were monogamous primarily? We don't know. We don't know for sure. We make This is the thing. Like I was saying, we, we make inferences based on on studying modern forager populations who lived like we did during the Pleistocene during this mm-hmm. period, or by, or by looking at bony differences. We look at how men and women, let's say, their body sizes were very different, and then suddenly the body sizes start getting more similar, uh, for example. Um, so we make, you know, we're making inferences. We're, we're trying to glimpse what was happening in the past. But as you don't think there's forward, some like contemporary bias for monogamy that colors our glimpses into the past? That well, we're there's, examining there's, the past through the, uh, our current cultural yeah. frame that preferences monogamy and really has a bias in favor of monogamy? Well, first of all, if anything, until very recently throughout the world, there was a bias for polygyny. Um, and we'll come to that. But, uh, and there's no doubt that science, like any other human activity, is, is prone to biases and errors and fraud and can, uh, you know, can institutionalize existing power dynamics, you know, uh, you know, let's not forget it was 19th century scientists that, you know, had a whole race science about, you know, inferiority of certain races to justify colonialism and slavery and so forth. So, so I'm well aware of all this, but, but I do think uh, there is an objective reality. And I do think science is our best way of understanding what is real about the world. I mean, the alternatives would be voting, which, you know, didn't get the Catholic cardinals voting against Galileo very far. <laughs> uh, or, uh, or, or, or might makes right, you know, strength where the victor decides what's true, which is when you get totalitarianism. So no, I think science is the right way to appreciate the truth of the world, leaving aside mystical revelation. 
So then 10,000 years ago, what happened? Right. So, okay. So about 10,000 years ago, after we were sort of largely monogamous, we lived in these foraging bands, um, 10,000 years ago, uh, we get the agricultural revolution and we start farming the land and building cities and settling into one place. And we start accumulating wealth. And now we get inequality. Now we get big differences between, let's say, the men. And so now polygamy makes a comeback for historical reasons, not for biological reasons. You see, different forces are now acting that are giving rise to a similar uh, behavior. And that state of affairs persists, and we have historical records about this. You know, the Bible is replete, even the Bible, for example, is replete mm-hmm. with, you know, polygynous kings. You know, I forgot King David had hundreds of wives and concubines and so forth. Um, so we have historical records, we have archaeological evidence, you know, it's very clear. And you get polygyny till about 2,000 years ago, where where legal monogamy was start was first institutionalized by the Greeks about 2,500 years ago, and they said, you know, it's kind of it's kind of dissolute, you know, it's kind of louche to have be polygynous, <laughs> and and it's sapping, you know, our democratic ideals, and it's it's making men compete with each other for wives, whereas if they were to, you know, be more collaborative or work towards other, out, as you alluded to earlier, economic outcomes would be better for all of us. Let's prohibit polygyny. So you get legislative prohibitions, which are then adopted by the Romans and then basically spread around the world. And polygyny, uh, you know, was still strong in Asia until the middle of the 20th century. And in fact, there are many countries around the world, many very populous countries around the world where polygyny is still the norm, legally and otherwise. So, but you get gradually the kind of ascendance of a kind of monogamy. So very complicated picture, back and forth, back and forth. But, but, under all of that is the, the love that we feel for our, our sexual partners. Yeah, that's what you just describe in the book is when it comes to mating behavior, what do we all have in common that transcends yes. culture and time? And is that loving attachment that humans, uh, not only humans, but it's rare that, that humans can form. Yes. Um, I, I want to talk about the na people because they're such an outlier um, the way they've organized yes. their romantic and, and sexual lives. And you describe that really humans are burdened with these two contradictory biological impulses to possess one's partner and to have multiple partners. Hard to square, uh, you say in the book, is there are only two options, possession without the pleasure of diversity or the pleasure of diversity without possession. I'd say not so for people who are exploring or practicing polyamory currently, but also not so for the na going back centuries. Who are the Na and what are they doing that's so different? Yeah, so um, so the Na, uh, you know, so so if you look at sort of countries around the world or cultures around the world, the argument, or I show that this the sense of loving attachment is, is, is universally prevalent, with this exception of the Na people of the Himalayas, um, who primarily live in the Chinese part, who um, organize their romantic and sexual lives very differently than any other society in the world in a way that seemingly suppresses love. So they're a matrilineal society. Uh, children live with their mothers and their maternal relatives. In these villages, uh, they, they are completely organized around sort of what we would think of as very promiscuous sexual relations where the, the women have complete autonomy and choose their partners. So it's not uncommon for a young woman to be in her home at night or to have had a kind of offhand conversation with some boy or young man that appeals to her and boys will, young men will appear at her door 
and knock on the fence and try to persuade her that they should sleep with her that night. And she'll pick who she wants. And every night it might be someone different or she might have the same guy for a while. And then instantly either of them might break off the relationship. And it's not uncommon for, for women in these villages to have slept with every single man in the village and sometimes in adjoining villages. And they suppress, they suppress love by, yes. you know, there are all these social strictures, like the, the, the guy who comes to the, to, to the hut or begins to knock on the fence has yes. to be after dark and has to leave before sunrise. Yes. Correct. And they mock you if you feel attached. So the, the, there's a kind of, why would you feel attached to this girl? There's always another girl. Uh, and, and, um, so, and the women are both genders are treated the same way, like, you know, that you shouldn't be attached. And the primary sexual modality as the ethnographers of the not college modalities uh, is this type of furtive visit, so-called furtive visit, where they, of the kind we just described. Now, there are some other modalities where you can have kind of a more sustained, primarily sexual uh, interaction with somebody, but always these things are very lighthearted. They break up in an instant. The people are indifferent to the, lo- to the biological fathers, like they really don't care. Nobody, nobody, tracks it. I mean, they're not unaware that men and women must have sex to produce babies, but they, you know, your, your, your biological progenitor is uh, not of interest to anybody. And that person has no obligations to their offspring. The offspring are raised by their mothers, their mother's brothers in the household, their mother's grandmothers and so forth in the household. So, so this is how they are organized. Uh, and they have a very power. And incidentally, this was noted by, um, by Marco Polo, even when he visited the Nile in his records, uh, I could find the passage and read it from the book, but it's hilarious where Marco Polo says, you know, people in this country are not aggrieved if you have sex with their women, they think it's a favor you're doing to them, <laughs> you know. And um, I think there's a, a kind of a, a expression in the book where it's felt like that the, the semen is literally watering the ground, that, you know, you need rain from the sky to get the crops to grow. And this is the kind of understanding. Right. There, is, there, is, of, there isn't a belief that the man, uh, you know, contributes anything genetically or, or an understanding of, of genetics. It's just that there are the seeds that are already in the woman and it needs the semen as sort of water on the flower pot for the flower to grow. But he contributed nothing but hydration. Something like that. I mean, they don't literally think hydration. And I do think, if I remember correctly, that they, they recognize that an offspring might look like the father. I don't think that in the traditional sense they had any kind of genetic thing understanding, but but yes, what you said is that the semen is seen as uh, you know just this sort of you know rain from the sky will you know is required for the flowers to grow. So so this is the way they are organized, and it's a well functioning society. There's no manifest problems with it. There's there is some sexual jealousy, and uh, but not a lot. It is interesting. You describe this whole system that that exists kind of to suppress love, including you know stigma attached to developing yeah. deep feelings, and yet there's an escape hatch. Some people, some na do fall in love with yes. one person and then run off together. Yes, yes, that's the forbidden fruit and the forbidden thing in this society is to fall in love and forsake all others. So you get these young couples that are like you know we're going to run off to be together just with each other, you know? And it's not because they can't have sex with each other. They can. It's not like Romeo and Juliet. It's because, it's because they love each other. So even this society cannot suppress this desire. And so it is the case in all human societies, for all phenomena, that you can have powerful cultural overlays that reshape our biology or that shape our biology, incidentally. But, um, but, but to suppress love, you need a very powerful cultural overlay, which this society has, 
and they provide, I think, a very telling exception uh, to the rule we, you know, of love is universal. Loving your partners is universal. So what do the not teach the rest of us? What does their example prove about all human cultures? The universal impulse toward love? Is that the thing we all share? I think, I mean, I think, first of all, there are a number of lessons from the exceptional not case. I think that human beings are endlessly plastic. And I think there's no doubt that we can use the cultures that we make collectively. In fact, that we have been genetically or even evolution has equipped us with a capacity to make culture. Let's not forget that our capacity to make culture is itself rare in the animal kingdom. It's something we evolved to do. And it's a power that we can use to shape how we live. And this includes our sexual and romantic lives. We know, for instance, that there are cultures in New Guinea where homosexuality has been institutionalized as a kind of cultural trait. So we know that there are very powerful cultural forces that can reshape our sexuality in all kinds of ways. But there are certain core things that are not so easy to reshape. And so I think the Na both, both, both provides an interesting exception to the rule uh, in the ways that we illustrated, but also in a kind of serious exception that proves the rule, is that proves that actually love is universal and you need a very powerful cultural force to, to stop that or redirect it. So basically there's something for everyone in the Na example. Not only does it show that our romantic and sexual practices can be shaped by culture, but it also shows how fundamental and deep the underlying impulses really are. The book is Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. There's a lot of fascinating stuff in here. Shipwrecks and the way children organize themselves to play, even when they don't all share a common tongue. Uh, it, it, it's a fascinating account of, of how societies organize themselves and how we organize them, including our romantic lives. Thank you, Nicholas Christakis, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, um, I'm calling about my problem. Um, I'm in my early 20s, and uh, my issue is that I have a hard time orgasming in front of my boyfriend, uh, and I don't really know why or how to fix it. I can come on my own, like, especially when I'm using my vibrator, but, like, even when he's eating me out and it feels really good or he's, like, fingering me and it feels really good, I just have this little moment of, like, oh, that's so awkward to like come in front of him or like it's so like like it just feels weird for some reason and like I want to come in front of him like I want it to just be fine and not an issue but it just is weird for some reason um I also have a history of uh sexual assault so I don't know if that maybe has anything to do with it um yeah thanks of course your history of sexual assault could have something to do with it and I would encourage you to unpack that or address that or talk about it with a counselor who specializes in working with people who've experienced sexual trauma. But I've heard from lots of women who have this very same problem who don't have a history of sexual trauma. And if you're a new listener, you probably haven't heard me say this before. But if you're an old time listener, you have heard me say this before. This is my advice for women with your particular problem. And I've heard from a lot of women who've taken this advice and it has worked for them. So I'm going to give it to you. Masturbate while your boyfriend is not in the house, but let him know that you're masturbating. Then masturbate while your boyfriend is in the house or in the apartment, but not in the room with you. And the door is shut and he is far away doing something else, playing video games, but he knows you're masturbating and you know that he knows that you're masturbating. Then masturbate with him standing outside the bedroom door silently with the door closed while he knows that you're masturbating. Then masturbate with him in the room and your eyes shut with him standing there very quietly. Then masturbate 
with him laying in the bed beside you without touching you with your eyes shut if you need to keep your eyes shut or get a blindfold if that makes you more comfortable. But just knowing he's there, hearing him breathe while you masturbate. Then masturbate with him in the room, maybe with your eyes shut, maybe with him blindfolded so that you don't have to be self-conscious about him looking at you. And then masturbate with him laying next to you in the bed, maybe with that blindfold still on him and your eyes screwed shut. So he can't see you and you can't see him, but you know he's there. You can hear him breathing and masturbate. And he gets gradually closer and closer to you as you masturbate and use your vibrator that could be the problem right there, that when you're with him and you want him to make you come or he's trying to make you come, he's just using his fingers or his tongue. And you may be one of those women who needs a little bit more of a kick, those powerful vibrations that go deeper into the body that hit different parts of your clit. You may need that. Some women do. Some women can only climax with the assistance of a vibrator. You may have made an association that's meritless here where you've associated an inability to climax with him, not because you couldn't come with him there, but because you aren't doing with him the things that you do when you're alone that you know make you come, which is use that vibrator. So this entire time I'm telling you to masturbate, you use the vibrator. And then once you're comfortable with him in the house, once you're comfortable with him at the door, once you're comfortable with him in the room, have him hold you. Then put the vibrator in his hand, but you guide it. You control it. And that by itself can really help because sometimes the impediment for people when they have difficulty coming is letting go and letting someone else because they feel very vulnerable and out of control. And if you can find a way to bring that person into your pleasure, to incorporate them into how you get yourself off, but you still have some measure of control at first, you may find it easier to climax. Again, I have given this advice for years and I've heard from lots of women who did exactly this. The boyfriend in the house, the boyfriend at the door, the boyfriend in the bed, the blindfold, and they eventually got to the boyfriend holding them, helping them, and finally the boyfriend getting them off themselves. Good luck. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a 30-year-old uh, cis white male. I'm in a bit of a hairy situation. So a guy messaged me on Grinders here a few weeks ago and uh, said he recognized me, and I didn't recognize him, and frankly, I don't get out all that much. Long story short, apparently he had recognized me from some videos he's found online. It turns out that apparently a guy that I used to fool around with here a couple years ago um, has put some videos that we recorded on a page site. Um, I knew he had put some on Pornhub at one point, and I had those taken down. Uh, but yeah, apparently he's uh, making some money off all this. And I'm rather torn. Uh, I don't know whether I would prefer the video simply be taken down or if I could use a cut of the money. Um, well, I could use a cut of the money, but uh, because I'm broke as hell. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what my recourse for either of these things would be. Uh, furthermore, um, this same person also told me that uh, apparently my uh, phone number and name and state where I used to live are on there. So... Yeah, uh, Dan, if you could tell me <laughs> anything I might be able to do to, like I said, either or or perhaps both, either get a cut of the money or get the videos taken down or whatever, I really appreciate it because I have been super stressed out about this. 43 states now have revenge porn laws. That's where someone takes a video or a photograph that was meant to be private and pushes it out into the public to embarrass or shame, or humiliate, or destroy another human being. 43 states now criminalize revenge porn. Since your phone number is on these videos, and your real name, and your location, this isn't just, I'm sharing dirty videos, I want to make a little bit of money, I hope, 
that this person never finds out about it. This is someone trying to harm you. This is someone doing the revenge porn thing. So you have leverage here if you live in one of the 43 states with revenge porn statutes. If you can afford a lawyer, you can have a lawyer send him a letter and threaten him with prosecution, threaten him with a lawsuit. If he doesn't pull the videos down or cut you in, even if he cuts you in, you want him to take your phone number and name and location off these videos. But it all depends on if you're in one of those 43 states. If you're in Illinois, if you're in California, if you're in Washington, if you're in Texas, revenge porn statutes. If you're in Indiana, if you're in Ohio, if you're in Colorado, no revenge porn statutes. So no leverage for you. You reached out to Pornhub in the past when he put these videos up previously and they took them down. You can reach out to whatever site he's posting them to now and make the same argument that that is you. And you can prove that's you since your name's on it and you have your own ID that you can send them and that you want these things Yank down. But yeah, revenge porn statutes are your friend here and they are your leverage here. I would encourage you to either talk to a lawyer if you can scrape the dosh up to get a lawyer or to just threaten him with sending your lawyers after him if he doesn't pull the videos down or cut you in. Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old straight woman living on the West Coast and I'm calling because I'm worried about my sexual future, I guess. So I dated this gorgeous man for two years after sleeping with him for a few more before that. And we broke up almost six months ago for a few reasons. He was generally just terrible at communication. could not for the life of him figure out how to be sensitive. And toward the beginning of the relationship, he ended up cheating with his ex over a, quote, misunderstanding, then manipulated me into staying by pulling the depression card. Basically, this relationship just succeeded in putting me back in therapy. So that's good. Definitely not my best boyfriend pick. Um, but it's over now and I'm feeling myself again and that's all great. My problem is that this terrible boyfriend was amazing in bed. His penis was huge, had the ideal up curve, and he was one of those magic men who has no refractory period. In a usual fuck session, he would come between four and eight times and was totally supportive of me getting off. Um, yeah, I have never really been a modest person when it comes to sex. So I've been around and this guy takes the fucking cake. Now that we've been apart for a few months, I've been missing that sex so much, like so much so that I've caught myself considering going back to the relationship, which is literally just the worst idea. So I would really love to hear your thoughts on how to get over his amazing dick and move the fuck on because fuck that guy. Get yourself an amazing dildo while you search the world for other amazing dicks. Your chances of finding a guy out there with no refractory period again, those are really low. I would prioritize trying to find the guy with the dick that works for you, with the right curve, or the guy, maybe his dick doesn't work for you, doesn't have the right curve, but he's willing to use the toys on you that have the right curve and fill you in the right way, and not prioritize trying to find the guy with no refractory period. They are rare. That is a genetic mutation. They are the true X-Men, and you should count yourself lucky that you found one in the wild in the course of your life and not torture yourself with the idea of trying to hit that lottery again. Hey, Dan, I got a question for you. I'm an overweight man myself, but I am seeing online there is no shortage of love for overweight women in the BBW community. But as far as straight men, there does not seem to be any love whatsoever in the straight community. I've looked, I mean, there's no porn featuring overweight men. There's just doesn't really seem to be anything out there. I prefer BBW women myself, but you don't really, you don't really see a lot of love for overweight men online. 
So if you know of any sites, uh, just let me know. Just so we're clear, you're not looking for dating sites for larger people. There are lots of dating sites for larger people and dating apps for larger people. Not that larger people need to wall themselves off or segregate themselves on dating sites only for larger people. You'll find plenty of people of all shapes and sizes on Match.com and OkCupid and everywhere else. But that's not what you're looking for. When you say sites, when you talk about, you know, there's all this love for BBW, big, beautiful women out there, you're talking about, I believe, porn. You're talking about sites that fetishize BBW women. And you're asking, where's the love? Where are these sites for big guys? And they exist, but they're mostly gay. It is the male gaze that tends to be the fetishizing gaze. So porn is produced for the consumers of that porn who are mostly men. And, you know, the BBW porn features BBW women and the big, beautiful guy porn, BBM porn, features those big, beautiful men for guys, for gay guys, because it's the male gaze. It's almost always being catered to with pornography, which is not to say you can't find lots of porn out there with people of all different shapes and sizes and lots of big guys. There's a whole amateur porn universe on Pornhub and other porn tube sites where people upload their own stuff and you'll find lots of big guys in that, but they're not specifically categorized by big guy necessarily until you get into gay land where there's enough gay guys who are into big men in the same way. There's a lot of straight guys who are into big women. And then you get these special love for the big guy sites or love for the big girl sites. But the barrier to entry to create sites and create porn now, even in our post-Tumblr universe, is pretty low. If there's something that you'd like to see in the world, get out there and create it yourself or go out there onto all the porn sites in the world and curate it yourself. You're looking for someone else to show you the love? Well, don't sit there waiting for someone else to show you the love. You can show yourself that love. All right, before we get to your feedback calls, some of your feedback tweets, high anonymous tweets. Hey, millennials, you don't have to get your entire concept of sex and loving relationships on the opinions of a single person. Use your own mind and heart to question even the almighty Dan Savage. Just because he's confident doesn't mean he's right. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Signal boosting that because I don't think it applies to just millennials. Gen X, boomers, Gen Z coming up after the millennials. Hi, Anonymous's advice applies to you too. Thomas Carver tweets, in regard to gay dudes blowing straight guys, that's a real thing. I know from personal experience, I'd say about half the guys I've sucked have been straight. I don't question their identified sexuality because I know sexuality is complicated. And, you know, you also want to suck that dick. Another reason not to challenge the person whose dick you're about to suck on their sexual identity. Finally, Mari Naomi tweets, I just used Yahtzee in a sentence and realized I listened to way too much. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. Actually, Mari, if you're using Yahtzee in sentences now, I'd say you're listening to the exact right amount of Savage Lovecast. Thank you for your tweets. If you want me to read your tweet on a future episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your feedback calls. I am calling about the woman who wanted her lover to lend a hand and who had been with a lot of lovers who didn't care about getting her off. I think something was going on with this guy who said, oh, yeah, wait, just a minute. Not that he didn't care so much about getting her off, but that he didn't know how to get her off. And that may be the case with previous lovers as well. 
And I think men in our society don't like not knowing something and they definitely don't like looking like they don't know something when it comes to sex. So I think that's what we're dealing with here. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment for the woman who was having trouble dating guys who would get her off. There's a really simple way to solve this, which is don't let them get off before you do. <laughs> like, don't let them put it in or whatever until it's clear that they're going to take care of you. Because if you're fucking the right guys, they should be taking care of you first or making sure that you're having a good time. And that'll become abundantly clear. Like, just take it slow and um, look after yourself first. Hi, this comment is for the girl from last week's show who's been sleeping with the guys that aren't finishing her off, getting her close and telling her, eh, I'm good. Uh, sweetheart, you are having sex with complete fucking assholes. I am going to get my girlfriend off twice before she even comes near my dick. And then uh, hopefully she's going to get off a couple more times while she's using my dick. And there are many, many guys who are going to do that. You got to find yourself one and quit having sex with these fucking assholes. Holy shit. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can also drop us a tweet. Just use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. This weekend, this weekend coming, my dirty little porn film festival, Hump, is once again out on the road. We're in Seattle, Portland, Providence, Rhode Island. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets and find out when Hump is humping a city near you. And Spliff, the film festival made by stoners for stoners, will be in San Francisco. Head over to spliffffilmfest.com to find out more. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Nicholas Christakis on Twitter at N-A-Christakis. That's N-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-A-K-I-S. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.